Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Providentially had this plan to say before that, uh, just as you think about it, there's two things that you do that encourage me greatly in my preaching, one of which you probably know about, one of which you might not. One uh, is you pray for me. I've asked you for months now to continue to pray for my preaching, pray that the Spirit of God gives power to His Word. Uh, It's also my kind of most encouraged uh, response when people are upset or don't like my preaching. Great, pray me into a better sermon. Nobody will enjoy that more than me. Uh, But the second part of the thing you probably don't think about is your singing. Uh, Your singing is a ministry to me uh, in preaching, uh, just in terms of how it warms my heart and ministers to me as I seek to uh, proclaim the word of the Lord. And I would particularly say altos and tenors. Uh, Y'all particularly are a sweet ministry to me. That was before we sang the doxology a cappella, which is just lovely. This is God's word in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind, the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise Leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. The fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken to us many times this morning, even in the reading of your scriptures, and now you speak to us in their preaching. And so we ask that your spirit would be pleased to work in us, to give us understanding, and to give us faith. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You'll know that I enjoy kind of contemplating 
the quirks of how a culture operates. Right, just the weird kind of hiccups and the oddities that we've picked up along the way. <clears throat> One of the things that I, I enjoy kind of, I, I get chuckles at personally, are kind of the larger idea of the cultural rituals that we have. The things that, that honestly don't mean anything. But for some reason, it's become part of kind of the American DNA that we have to do them. Right, our, our most recent addition to this, not most recent, but one of the more recent ones is the, the thoughts and prayers. Uh, it always makes me chuckle in a, in a dark and morbid sort of way because, one, that phrase is almost always used in a grammatically incorrect fashion. Sending thoughts to you. I, I would really love to know how to do that. Right? It would save me a fortune in a cell phone bill if I could figure out how to send my thoughts directly to you. I'd never have a call. There'd be no more email. My efficiency would go through the roof. I'd save hours every week, just thoughts right into your mind. Thoughts and prayers. Stupid. <laughs> I think the ones that, that give me the most chuckle are the ones like that, that it's become a kind of common American ritual that has very little meaning behind it. Now, I know there are Christians that say that, and what they intend is, I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you, but say that instead, please. The problem, though, is that this idea of kind of a ritual, an action that has no deeper spiritual reality, uh, unfortunately isn't just limited to politics or isn't just limited to culture. It, it unfortunately has kind of oftentimes kind of worked its way backwards into the church. And in fact, I would actually even say for many of us, unfortunately, it's, it's worked its way into our idea, our understanding of Christianity. Where Christianity has become for some of us, or maybe perhaps kind of subconsciously, this, this kind of magic ritual that we do, but we've lost the kind of meaning and the significance behind it. What that looks like on a pragmatic basis is it looks like a definition of Christianity that is comprised entirely of a to-do list. What does it mean to be Christian? Well, I go to church. I mean, I'm glad you go to church. You should go to church. I'm happy to see you. That's, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Well, it means that I try to follow the Ten Commandments. Again, I'm glad that you do. Your life will be better. I'm, I'm, that's wonderful. But that's not the definition of a Christian. I'm I'm sure there are many atheists that would try to follow at least some of the Ten Commandments, maybe the last six, certainly not the first couple. Now, instead, what we're actually kind of called to in Christianity is, is to be on the lookout, to have our kind of personal, mental, and spiritual radar constantly looking in our souls for those areas where we've begun to adopt rituals, habits and actions that, that we're not really spiritually defined by. 
I mean, Matthew is challenging us, and that's what we're going to look at certainly in this passage. He's been challenging us from the very beginning uh, to think of Jesus as a different kind of king. He's a king who reigns on earth, but he's not an earthly king. He's a heavenly king, and as a result, he has a heavenly kingdom. It does exist and overlap on earth, but it's not a nation state like Israel or Russia or the United States or any other. It's a spiritual kingdom, and as its nature is different, the nature of its members are different. Right? I, I was born in the United States of America, and therefore I have citizenship here. I was born again spiritually, therefore I have citizenship there. It's a different type of kingdom. It gets a different type of constituent, a different kind of member. And the whole thing kind of centers around uh, this idea that all of the gospel writers and Paul and others will use this idea of the good news, the gospel. A phrase that you hear often in the church, but is the kind of the, the beating heart of Christianity. The gospel is kind of simply put as this. God loves his people. His disposition toward his people is always one of love. For his people, there is no other disposition than that of love. And because he loves his people so much, he chose to fix their problem with sin. My problem with sin. Your problem with sin. And the way that he would fix our sin is not to destroy us. Again, though he, he would be justified in doing that, right? The, he could have done that. He still could. No, he couldn't. Because what did he do instead? He sent his son on the cross. That's the whole point of the book of Matthew. We're getting to that in just a, a handful of chapters. It may take us forever, but we will get there, Lord willing. God sends his son to the cross, and on the cross, something tremendous happens. All of the evil things that any of God's people have ever done, are currently doing, or ever will be done, are placed upon Jesus. This is one of the, the great problems of kind of trying to do representations of the cross. A painting, a, a picture, a sculpture, a movie, they can only capture kind of the physical suffering that Jesus endures on the cross. They can capture what it looks like to have your shoulders dislocated and you know, be suffocating. To, they can capture the physical suffering. They cannot in any way get a glimpse of the real pain. The real issue that Jesus undergoes on the cross is that he becomes sin. I mean, we think of him as the holiness of God incarnate on the cross. In many ways, you could say he is our sin incarnate. Sin in human form, undergoing the entirety of the wrath of God. That's why the Apostles' Creed that we often confess, uh, he descended into hell on the cross. Undergoing the entirety of God's wrath so that there is no wrath left for God's people. And the only thing left for God's people is love. If you're a child of God, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, God's 
disposition to you today and forever is love. Go even further. If your name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and you don't know him yet, his disposition to you is still love. It's not ultimately dependent upon you. This is the beating heart of Christianity is that someone else paid for our errors. Someone else paid for our mistakes. And the solution was given to us freely. Well, to us. Cost Jesus absolutely everything. Cost him his life. Cost him for a season his relationship with the Father cost him everything. The problem kind of becomes, for many of us though, is that realistically, as much as we might say it, we don't really like free gifts. I mean, we like the idea of free, and I mean, mean, if I take you out to lunch and buy you a free lunch, you're excited about that. But I mean, put it in kind of a more kind of crasser idea. If the person sitting right down the row from you gave you $10 million this afternoon and said it's free, I don't need a thank you. I don't want you to acknowledge it. I just want you to use it. Do you know how awkward it would be the next Sunday when you showed up? Right? I mean, you'd be happy the first Sunday you saw him there sitting next to you in the pew. But it would begin to worm in the back of your brain where you would have to say, well, I've got to repay them. Now, obviously, I don't have $10 million to repay them, but you know what? I'll speak kindly of them behind their back. You know what? I'll encourage them when they're low. I will do all of the good things that I can do to them to repay them. Now, I I don't have the money, but I'll spend the rest of my life repaying. And you see, that right there is the problem in our Christianity. It's because God has given us infinitely more than $10 million, and the result is the rest of our lives, instead of just being grateful, we've attempted to reduce Christianity to a transaction. Rather than God loves me, because he's good. It's an attempt in some fashion to say, God loves me because I'm good. God loves me because I'm doing something. He's pleased with me because I'm thankful. He's pleased with me because I've read my Bible. I mean, how many times have you heard a phrase like that? Well, I, you know, how's your walk going, your Christian walk? Well, I'm doing great as a Christian. I've read my Bible. I'm doing great as a Christian because God loves me. (laughs) Nothing to do with me. You see, this is, I think, for many of us, one of the great struggles we have in terms of understanding and believing the gospel is that we don't like free things at the end of the day because we feel indebted. That's the point. And so we try to reduce Christianity to something transactional. If I give God something, then he will forgive me. If I give God something, then he will like me more. If I give God obedience, then he won't be mad at me. If I give God something, then the transaction, the purchase, will buy me his favor. 
It puts me back in the driver's seat. It gives me a, an illusion of control. It, it, honestly, it minimizes grace is what it does. It's my humble opinion that the human nature that we have, this lingering corruption of sin, is constantly trying to recreate transactional Christianity. Rather than a religion that is just says, thank you, I love you. It's, it's constantly trying to recreate where we can buy something from God. A transaction. I think these two passages both illustrate ways in which the human heart is kind of is doing this. Rather than just marveling and delighting in God's presence, it's delighting in, in, in the, the transaction, right? It's delighting in, in the purchase instead of in God himself. All right, so we're going to look at these uh, a bit quickly. The first one that I want to look at, there's a tremendous danger here that we uh, prioritize the function of Christianity over the presence of God, right? The function of Christianity over the presence of God. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple. So back up, we understand this is, we have this very well laid out. Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. It is a coronation event. The entire town comes out. We know two smaller towns empty out to form the mob, which then draws out most of Jerusalem. They meet Jesus in the street, and they have a massive coronation event. This king is unlike anything they've ever seen. Rather than riding in on a giant war steed or on the back of some chariot, instead, he rides on not a, just a donkey, but a foal, a baby donkey, useless, the most useless sort of creature that you could possibly ride on. Why? Because he's the prince of peace. And as part of this coronation event, everybody comes out and they're singing praises and uh, Hosanna, 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 this is the Messiah, this is God's chosen king, this is the Lord, uh, he is going to free us from all our enemies. We know from the other gospel uh, writers that after the triumphal entry is over, he enters into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and then he goes home. And everybody's kind of like, well, that was anticlimactic. What's going to happen now? Uh, that Sunday, we know Monday morning, he wakes up, and on the way into Jerusalem, the fig tree story starts. Matthew tells it out of order so that he can put them start and end together. The fig tree story starts Monday morning, and then the temple Monday midday, and then the fig tree concludes Tuesday morning. It was the 10th of Nisan, if you're really interested, we know that specifically. But what Matthew does is to highlight here in verse 12, Jesus entering into the temple. And as he enters into the temple, this is Passover week, right? This is a big deal. This is their religious holiday. This is the one that all of the, the Jewish men were required to come to. The population of Jerusalem spiked. Everybody was coming to the temple. And uh, as a result, the temple was a very busy place. And in fact, actually, we have a fairly good idea of what was happening in the temple. It makes really good sense, and you can see exactly how they would get there to make the decisions they did. When you came to the temple to worship as part of Passover, you had to bring with you kind of two things if you were a Jewish man in this time. You had to bring your temple tax, which previously they tried to charge Jesus already, but it had to be in a very specific type of coinage that was not used anywhere else in the world. 
So you either had to figure out how to buy that coinage, and you couldn't just go down to your average bank because they didn't exist, or you had to find a money changer. So you know what? It'd be really easy, it'd be really helpful if we just had the money changers, say, like, in the lobby. Right? That way you don't have to worry about getting your temple tax. You just show up and when you, you park your, uh, you know, your donkey out in the uh, parking lot and then you kind of walk in as you hit the, the narthex right there, the lobby, you can do your money changing there, buy your temple tax, drop it in the plate as you come in. Easy peasy, man. How useful is that? That was one of the things you had to bring with you. The other is you had to bring a sacrifice. And the problem with bringing a sacrifice is that it had to be a, a sacrifice without blemish. It couldn't have any sort of problems with it. It couldn't have any deformities. It, couldn't have, it had to be a perfect sacrifice. And I, I don't know about you, but the idea of dragging a lamb, you know, 200 miles by foot from northern Israel to southern or wherever else you wanted to go, that's a risky kind of thing, isn't it? One, because you're not actually sure that you'll take good enough care of it that it'll still arrive without blemish. But two... There's no guarantee that what you think is without blemish is what the priest thinks is without blemish. So you know what the easiest thing would be? You just don't worry about it. We'll put it in the lobby. Right? So that way you show up, you park your donkey out in the parking lot, you walk into the lobby, you go down one aisle first, you give your money to get your temple tax, you walk down the other, you buy your uh, pre-approved sacrifice that you know the priests are already on board with, then you pay your tax, you sacrifice your sacrifice, and you're in like Flynn. And you know what? It's just easy. In fact, we actually know where they've set up at this point. They're, the temple there was a massive complex. I mean, we're talking acres and acres and acres and acres. It's a huge place. But they're set up in, in the court of the Gentiles, which is, um, they had kind of rings of, of importance. Um, Gentiles, women, men, you know, priests, and then in. This is in the far one out. This is the Gentiles. This is where uh, the biggest court, the one that was furthest away. And again, it, it would be here like the lobby. And and you can see how easily it creeps into their minds, wouldn't it? Hey, guys, you know what? It's just easier if we just put it in the lobby, and that way the people don't actually have to prepare. They just show up. Hey, you know what? It'll just be easier if we just kind of, it'll spoon feed everybody. I mean, sure, we'll make a little bit of money off of it. In fact, we'll just mark it up a little bit, and it'll fund the whole temple for the year. In fact, that's why the priests tolerate it. The markup was just enough that it kind of funded all the businessmen and women who were doing it, but then also funded the priesthood. And the amazing thing is that in their wonderful focus on ease, they seem to have forgotten the whole point of going to the temple to meet was, was to meet with God. Right, they've, they've got this kind of massively streamlined, super efficient, just fantastic way, right? Points of service, everything's offered. Right, it's your ancient Jewish spiritual version of Walmart. You walk in, you get everything you need. You're good to go, right? But interestingly, they've forgotten the one thing that the whole point of it is, is to be with God. 
It's to be in his presence. It's to be uh, in fellowship with him, to know him and to love him and to be known by him and to be loved by him. And that's totally forgotten. We know this. Jesus has already cleansed the temple once in his ministry, likely three years prior, probably the same week, weirdly enough. So he comes in. The first time he did it with a whip. We don't know if he had a whip this time. For those of you that, by the way, like to think of Jesus as always being nice, I hate to break it to you. That is not what the Bible explains him as. Right? The first time he cleansed the temple, he actually beat people as he threw them out of the temple. He's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, but he was not always what Southerners would define as nice. Here, the same thing. (laughs) So angry at God's glory being uh, distorted, so angry at uh, the, the evil inside the temple, he just goes and starts throwing tables over and flipping, throwing their money everywhere. And, you know, you could see, imagine all of the merchants freaking out like, ah! my money it's mixed with their money who's and everybody's fighting to try to pick it just total chaos and then jesus i love this quotes for them we know he's actually quoting from the septuagint here quotes from them uh, for them isaiah 56 and jeremiah 7 my house shall be called a house of prayer i love how he claims it it's his he is the temple but you're making it a den of robbers. In in an effort to make it easy, in in an effort to kind kind of fund things and just make life a little bit better, you've lost the focus on the presence of God. And I was thinking about kind of, kind of what's a catchy way to think of this? And uh, maybe the, the easiest way in my brain was to think that this is like get it done Christianity. Well, what, what does this kind of religion look like? Well, just get it done, right? Let's just, we'll find the most efficient way. We'll find the easiest way. Like, let's, just, let's just get it done. Friends, your Christianity is not about getting it done. It's about being with Jesus. I remember as a, a child being, we might lovingly say, encouraged to read the Bible. My favorite passage to read when I was young and in trouble was Psalm 117. For those that know your Bible, yeah, that's a good joke, isn't it? And it's the shortest chapter in the Bible. Moms say, go read your Bible. Get it done. Two verses, I'm out. Right, so many of us, that's how we approach Christianity. It's like, this is a thing I have to just get done. It's, it's a box that has to be checked and we've forgotten. No, it's, it's to take us into the presence of God. It's not perfunctory. It's not ritual. The story doesn't stop there. We move from those that are kind of worshiping function to those that are kind of captivated by the externals. And they fall in love with the externals instead of the presence of God. Jesus cleanses the temple. He throws everybody out. He makes a mess of it. And then there in his ministry in the temple, the blind and the lame come to him in the temple, which is staggering. Again, outcasts, people, they would have had to have been beggars or had somebody care for them. These are rejects in society. 
These are the losers. These are the unclean masses, the untouchables, the ones that nobody would want to be a part of. And now they're coming into the temple, a place they weren't supposed to be, so that he could heal them. And I love how Matthew notes that the children kind of hadn't let it go from yesterday. And those that have grown up with young children, you know this, right? They have the ability to enjoy a joke for about five days longer than it needs to be enjoyed. The kids in the passage here, I, I think not enjoying a joke, but enjoying the excitement of the day before. Sunday, all of the towns had been busy crowning Jesus as king. Now you have this just unbelievably just emotional portrait of Jesus sitting in the temple with broken people coming to him and the kids just dancing around him, praising him as king. And it's, just, it's absolutely beautiful. And the priests get angry. Because the people that are worshiping Jesus are all losers. They're the rejects. They're the the broken people. Remember, this time, children of the category that's being mentioned here were perceived in the same class of people as like mentally disabled humans. That's how the Jews treated children in so many cases. They weren't even half people. They were less than half people. And here you have Jesus surrounded by no one that anybody would want to be near. And the priests get grouchy. We'll love it. You can hear them, right? That biting sarcasm. Do you hear what they're saying? How dare you, Jesus? Which is an amazing question that you're going to ask a man who's actively healing the blind. Not, how did you do that? I guess that's next week's sermon. Two weeks, I guess, on vacation. How did you do that? That one shows up in the next section. But instead, do you hear what they're saying? Not, not ever realizing, no, he actually could be the king of the Jews. He's healing the blind in their midst. Instead, Jesus quotes Psalm 8, again from the Septuagint, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Oh yeah, by the way, God ordains praise, and he ordains praise from those you would never expect. I love specifically how he mentions here nursing babies. Those that are not yet intellectually developed enough to even appreciate who God is. Doesn't matter. God brings forth praise even from them. Just on a side note, it's one of the reasons why baby noises in church are great noises. Right? The little coos, the little, the little ahs, the sometimes I'm hungry and I need to eat. Occasionally the diaper noise that's really loud. Those are great noises. Even the diaper noise. Because out of the mouth of infants and nursing children, God has ordained praise. And who am I to say he's not drawing forth praise from that child even now? I'm not going to say that because he said he is. You see, what's happening here is that uh, the, the priests are saying, these are the kind of people that look the part. They don't look the way I look. They don't talk the way I talk. They don't sound the way I sound. They don't smell the way I smell. They don't look good. And again, kind of in my own mind, this look good Christianity. 
Some of you grew up in parts of the church that uh, a successful Christian was uh, determined by their relationship to alcohol or tobacco or dancing or certain kinds of movies, but the entirety of Christianity was defined by how we look as opposed to who we know. Instead of being in the presence of Jesus, it's, it's being in the presence of people that are just like me. Look like me, walk like me, talk like me. What a mess. What a, what a moment for them to miss. They're standing there being grumpy while the Lord of life restores people's sight. Well, the kids praise him and they pout. The danger of worshiping function over the presence of our God, the danger of being captivated by externals, appearances, instead of the presence of our God. Third is the danger of of being in love with words instead of the presence of our God. This is the fig tree. The fig tree is a this is a very specific biblical illustration. This is a hard one. I'll be up front. This is the kind of passage that many of us could understand, but only from our own sinful, I guess, perspectives. Jesus is going into the city that Monday morning, and he's hungry. We know, again, what day this is, and he's looking at a fig tree along the side of the way. The fig trees in that time were called the poor man's food because they grow easily. And in fact, actually, providentially, they produce two harvests a year. There's an early spring harvest that's usually very small, and it's kind of the leftovers from the winter, and there was a massive harvest in the fall. They grew super easily in that part of the world. We know roughly when Jesus is going, what's most likely happened here is that it's just prior uh, to the early harvest. And so seeing leaves on the fig tree would give him the indication that this is a tree that should have figs on it. They probably would be underripe. They probably wouldn't be very large, but they would be enough for a hungry man to eat. Which is, again, intriguing that the Lord of life is so starving that he has to go find unripe figs to eat. But he gets to the tree, looks for some unripe figs for him to eat, and guess what? Can't find any. And so he curses it. Now, again, this is the kind of thing that many of us do, but it's because we've lost our temper, right? The things we say to the car in front of us or the inanimate object that's not working the way that we intend it to work, right? Curse you! How dare you do whatever. That's not actually what's happening here. And this is part of, I think, maybe what we miss in the passage. Is that the fig tree would have very much been a national emblem for the Jewish nation. Like when they heard fig trees, often they're referenced multiple times in the Old Testament. But they're referenced specifically uh, as being kind of a picture of what Israel is. Kind of maybe in American history, this would be the equivalent of walking over to the side of the road, maybe like we'll say 1982, walking over to the side of the road and seeing a bald eagle that had just been smushed by a hammer and sickle, right? 1982, you walk to the side of the road and you saw a bald eagle that had just been smushed by a hammer and sickle. What are you immediately going to kind of go, hmm, you're going to catch the meaning of this, right? Are you not? What would it have meant? Communism conquered over capitalism. Communism has conquered over uh, the United States. Why? Because our national emblem 
the bald eagle, would have been destroyed by their national emblem, the hammer, hammer and sickle. What Jesus is coming to here is he's arriving at a fig tree, this national emblem for Israel, a thing that is supposed to portray the fruitfulness and the blessings and the, the benefits of Israel. And he, when he gets to Israel, what's their condition? There's no fruit. An entire nation that has been preparing for thousands of years for the arrival of the Messiah. And when the Messiah gets there, there's no fruit. They talk a big game, right? They, they talk all the time about being Jews. They talk all the time about being Israel. They talk all the time about how they love the Lord. They talk, they talk, they talk, they talk, they talk, and there's nothing in their heart. There's no fruit. This is that sounds good Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity that as a Southerner, I am so incredibly well-versed in. The kind of Christianity that I grew up is the, is the water that I swam in as a child. The kind of Christianity that talks all of the time about being a Christian and has no idea who Jesus is. And I'll be honest with you, this is the one that absolutely disturbs me the most as a pastor. Because I pastor in the South. Part of the world that excels at talking a big game and having no idea what the presence of God even looks like. No idea who Jesus is, no idea uh, his free gift of salvation, no idea. But as long as I talk the part, well, maybe somebody will think it. Children, I would specifically address you. I would say this is your biggest danger. Growing up in a church like this where you're going to hear the Bible, growing up in a church like this where people talk about Christianity, there is a grave danger that you learn to talk about Christ but never know Christ. And all of these really kind of come to a head in the last couple of verses, just real quickly. What the disciples highlight here is that this kind of Christianity, it's more preoccupied with function, it's more preoccupied with externals, it's more preoccupied with sounding good. It's just pretend. That's really what it comes down to, is it's, it's just Pretend. It's adult pretend time. The disciples, I love it, marvel. How did he wither the fig tree? They know he's God, but somehow they missed that one. How do you do that? Well, interestingly, Jesus instead gives them a, 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 a lesson. You know how I did this? Interestingly, he doesn't say because I'm God and I did it divinely. That is a really interesting answer. That's not what he says. Because I'm human and I pray. My faith isn't pretend faith. It's not faith that, that, that has no knowledge of who God is. Instead, 
If you have faith, and you know God, you have a relationship with Jesus, it's not pretend. In fact, actually, it's so real that even prayer itself can change the world. Yeah, I mean, I understand to an unbeliever, there's probably no sillier endeavor than prayer. I mean, to an unbeliever, we sit down together as a group of people and we go and talk to God like he would listen to us. No, actually, that's exactly what the Bible says. He does listen to us. (laughs) And in fact, again, because his natural disposition towards us is love, his natural disposition to answer us is yes. And in fact, the only time he doesn't give us a yes that we understand is when he's giving us a yes that's better. I mean, it doesn't mean it always feels better in the moment, but it is better. Right? It's the same way that my parents, when I wanted to eat cotton candy for four meals straight, they were like, well, no, you can't do that. You need to eat some protein. I don't want it. Right? I want cotton candy. No, I love you too much to let you eat cotton candy for four meals straight. You don't need to be, you know, adult onset diabetes at five. Not a good choice. Friends, the challenge for us is this. That we go back to the beginning. That we go back to that great reality that Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. And he did that because God loves us. He loved us before the foundation of the world. I don't know why other than his good pleasure. There's no good reason to pick me. No good reason to pick you. I know you. I know me. But he did. And because he loves us, might it be that our lives could be spent not trying to repay him, that our lives could be spent not not being captivated with the functions around us or the externals around us or the words around us, that our lives could be spent being captivated by being in his presence, listening to his word, meeting with him in prayer, fellowshipping with him in the sacraments. That opening hymn, you may not have caught it, we sung Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. May it be that as we go back and kind of rewind and think about that gospel message, we'd actually begin to appreciate that just a little bit more as God's people. Father, we thank you for Jesus who lived for us, died for us, was raised for us. We thank you that that happened because you love us. Would you please make us more childlike in our love for you? We pray all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.